Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Very few things in this world can match the enduring influence of a good parent. A good parent can instill values and promote confidence. A good parent can inspire you to reach and help you develop the tools to deal with life's various challenges. Looking back on his life, Spencer Tillman understands how fortunate he was to have a mother who loved him and taught him so many lessons that fortified and edified him. You may know Tillman as a longtime college football analyst on CBS and most recently Fox Sports. Spencer has always known exactly where he was going, always thinking three steps ahead. Even during his days as an All-American running back for Barry Switzer's Oklahoma powerhouse, which led to an eight-year career in the NFL, he was preparing for a future in broadcasting, and he has become one of the signature voices of college football's modern age. Don't be fooled by his cerebral bearing. He's one tough dude, and has experienced his share of hard knocks on and off the field, and no blow proved harder than losing his beloved mother. Spencer, great to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm doing great, man. I don't mean to brag, but I'm for an old man, I'm hanging in there. Very good, very good. We've talked in the past about the um, tremendous influence of your mother. Tell me about her. Oh, LaRue, Helen Peoples Tillman. Yeah, she was um, quite an in- individual. She, um, I mean, when she walked in a room, that was the first thing you noticed about her. She, you know, she was six one, and for a woman, that's pretty tall. And she uh, had a certain countenance about her. She was a tall, slim woman, and um, walked with a certain aura. It wasn't hubris, that's for sure. It was just more the physical prowess that she brought with her. And she was probably the most humble person I've ever known, but full of wisdom. And 
Um, I, you know, she was such a complex person in some ways. I remember at her funeral, um, we had to have a larger facility. There were 1,200 people there, and of the range of people was what 1,200. Yeah, it's 1,200 people at her funeral, and she had. If there were people, street people. There was a U.S. senator there. There was a guy <clears> who was running for mayor, and some prominent people uh, were there from socialites and stuff. But they spanned the spectrum. It wasn't, you know, I mean, really dirt poor people to the the wealthy folks, and so. Her reach was very broad, um, and that was one of the things that stood out to me in that moment. It was really amazing scene. And your mother was a woman of God. Yeah, she was. She was a believer. She's a missionary. Did work all over the world and traveled quite a bit. And there was a point at which she she slowed down somewhat because uh, she had to uh, battle there near the end with with uh, some uh, some neuropathy and things of that nature. But she, for much of her life, did a lot of traveling and. Um, uh, I had a chance to go with her a couple of times, and I followed that tradition with some of my influencers in life. Uh, Reverend Dr. Greg Headington is a real dear friend of mine. We've made multiple trips to Cuba, and we'll be making some in the future. But that was part of her legacy. She influenced people to move beyond their comfort zones and do things that they didn't think they could do. That was a, a term that she used to talk about, and I heard it actually from her before I heard some of the people that I listen to today. And it was like, and I'm hoping I don't butcher this, but it was intervilus inventor which is latin and it means that which you desire most will be found where you least likely want to look that's the the essence of what it's communicating it's basically saying you can believe that if you want something passionate enough you're going to have to find it in a place that's going to challenge your um the areas of comfort you know it's kind of hollywood's model the hero's journey if you will uh, there's always got to be a point where you have to face your fear and that was the metaphor. And long before Hollywood picked up that and Joseph Campbell and others, that was a theme throughout scripture. And it was one that she reiterated many, many, many times in our lives. So there, there's a pattern that we go through in life. And she was adept at identifying where you were at any given point in time and then giving you scriptures that align, uh, I mean, I mean, to the to the nth degree to what you were dealing with. If you were dealing with um, fear, she would boom. Um, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with that temptation will provide a means of escape so that you may be able to bear it. And she would tell you not in the rote way that I just did. I did it from memory, but she would literally walk you through it and tell you, uh, this is what God has done for you. And this is why you can feel this way that you do about this situation. You can have confidence. And so that was really her brilliance. Her brilliance was taking scripture and really distilling it in such a way that not only could you understand it, but you felt it. And it was the combination of those two that really, I think, set her apart as a, a minister of the gospel and, and as a mother. Did she ever have to discipline you? Yeah, she did, you know, because I was, you know, we had bicycles were a big thing when I was growing up. And we that was our mode of travel. And, and we could travel a long way. You'd have a lot of energy pent up. And I was raised in North Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was a long way from the South side, which was the more fluent side. And then maybe two or three times a year, we would literally ride our bikes. And we were, remember now, we were being bussed from the North side of town, which was the predominantly minority side of town to the predominantly white side of town as part of the, the um, integration uh, track that was taking place. And I mean, it was miles, like 40 miles and something like that. And we would start off early in the morning, like 4.30. And we'd only do it like three or four times a year. But sometimes, you know, we would take our bicycles a little bit further than where we should, and uh, she would have to come get us a couple of times. But uh, other than that, not, nothing really off the rails bad. So I, I wasn't a perfect child, but 
I was uh, stayed within the bounds. What's the most important lesson she taught you? Most important <clears throat> lesson. Um, to allow people to identify themselves. I think that was the most important. I remember we were at a, and we didn't have very much money coming up. We were, my dad used to joke and say we were broke as the Ten Commandments, but but we had a lot of love. We never longed for anything in that regard. But I remember us being at a at washeteria once. We didn't have, a, we didn't own um, washers and dryers. So we would literally go to this place and wash our clothes. And I remember playing with my Tonka Troys and, and I was underneath this table that was about waist high. And that's where she would fold her clothes. And I was, and it was a long table. It was about maybe 12, 13 feet long. And I was playing at the far end underneath the table, kind of minding my own business. And I could hear these two guys talking over there about trying to get some money from this lady. And I, I knew they were talking about my mom and my mom used to wear these long flowing dresses. And um, so I, I was sitting there watching her doing what she did, knowing what was about ready to take place. So I sprinted down there, crawled down. And I basically said, hey, mom, mom, mom. And I pulled her in her dress and I said, those guys, those guys are coming down here to take money from you. And she said, baby, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I remember her telling me that. I said, no, mom, I heard them. I heard them. They're going to take money from you. And sure enough, they came down and one of them asked her for a couple of dollars. And so my mom had this little purse. And I don't know if you guys are old enough, or if the audience uh, listening can remember these little, had little, what I call tweezers. They were little metal clasps and you just push them and turn them and they would interlock and they would open. And that's what she kept her small change. And she clipped that open. But as she reached down into that purse and got ready to pull out money, she started to extend it to the young man, but she pulled it back. And she says, you know what? Let me ask you a question. And so she started to her spill and try to lure this guy to Christ at that moment. And she starts asking him questions. And you could tell he's getting frustrated at some point in time. And so, I mean, this goes on maybe like eight, 10 minutes, man. And she's really talking to this guy, but he wants the money. So he's listening. And so eventually she gives him the money. She says, you know what? That's awful nice of you. So she gives them the $2, gives one of them a dollar each. And so she looked down at me and she says, now, Pimpy, that was my little nickname she gave me. She said, Pimpy, wasn't that worth it? And I never forget that. And um, that was a lesson. And I think maybe the application of it is even when people mean you wrong or uh, maybe don't come with the best in intentions, you can still engage them in a way that it's worth the cost uh, to do it. And so even when I know people, your, your spirit kind of gives you the capacity to discern what people's intentions are. That was really one of the best gifts she left me. That was this, the, the ability to discern uh, things. Uh, and, and that's part spiritual, but it's part intuition as well. But just being mindful, I think, is the first step. But that's what she gave me. She gave me the ability to be patient enough to allow people to identify themselves so that we can be a blessing and advance the kingdom. That, that was her, her gift. That's great. I love that. Uh, when did you first start to learn about the building blocks of success? Um, <clears throat> I think I learned about them early on, uh, probably maybe 10, 11, 12, 13. And I was probably applying some basic principles before then, but not in a structured way where I knew exactly what they were. But around 13, 14, I got a job at the Coca-Cola bottling company in the summer. And it, it came through a way one of my mentors, Bill Noble, the late Bill Noble, who uh, was the proprietor of this place called Builder Steel, which is a steel company in, in West Tulsa. And Bill, uh, you know, we weren't old enough to work in the steel um, mill and factory, but we eventually did later on. But, but he was able to facilitate us a job at Coca-Cola Bottling Company. And he and his son, um, me and his son, Scott Noble, who we are great friends to this day, 
uh, worked there for several summers. And uh, he got not just myself, but my dear friend Jerome Calloway and Keith Morton and some other guys uh, jobs there as well. So that was um, where we begin to hone those principles. We, you know, about getting up and going to work and being on time and, and, and being responsible and all those things kind of flesh themselves out in that work environment. And then I had a paper route, right? I remember those, the paper routes had to be responsible for that. That was when you actually had a little book that you would go around and you'd collect your money uh, at the end of the month and, um, you know, had to be consistent with it and make sure you get those papers on those doorsteps and on those porches. Uh, so those principles were being there, but in terms of putting nephage and flesh and structure to them, that probably came, probably came a little bit uh, into my junior high school years where we had to start looking at uh, finding definitive structure to it, principles, concepts, like the principle of creativity and destruction. I never will forget that, that lesson. And the first time I saw it, Bill was helping me understand how to build buildings. And um, he said he, he had these cups and he put these cups out and were like five Dixie cups. And he says, I want you to put these cups on top of one another. So I put these cups on top of one another and he timed me. And it took me about maybe 17 seconds to put all five of them on top end over the mouth, end over the mouth. And so they stacked up to about maybe a foot and a half high. And so he says, okay, great. He says, how long do you think it'll take you if you continue to practice that? I said, I probably could get it down to maybe 10 seconds. So I tried again and I got it down to like 8.9 seconds, right? And really, I got good at it. He says, but here's the principle I want to teach you. He says, no matter how good you get at building this, you will never, ever be able to erect it as fast as I can destroy it. And I said, hmm. So he dumped them down and they all just fell down. He says, now put them back up. He says, do you want to try? I said, no. And at that point in time, the concept moved from what he would call um, cognitive understanding to behavioral transformation. That is where the truth of the principle, I got it from a cognitive standpoint because he demonstrated it enough where I understood it cerebrally. But when people teach you principles, unless you find some way to apply them, they don't really form or meld in the way that they could to, to transform your life. So the key was, how do you get principles to move from cognitive understanding to behavioral transformation? That is where the truth of the principle dictates where you go, who you associate with, where you spend your time, everything that you do passes through that filter of understanding of the principle. That is to say, it's gonna take me longer to get back what I'm trying to create if I go out and spend all night drinking with this person here, or if I'm smoking marijuana, if I attempt to do something that I know is wrong, there's going to be an antithetical impact on my life. So that's moving beyond cognitive understanding to behavioral transformation. So it's like real time. Today, it's almost instinctive. I'm not a perfect person, but I guarantee you, man, when I sense in a person that may be proposing a business opportunity, or maybe they want to spend some time with me talking about something, whatever, I know instantly whether that's a good deal or not. You know, I just know it. I mean, it's just an intuitive thing that happens over time. But you'd be amazed how many people don't have that filter or that capacity. And that was one of the greatest principles. And that happened around, to answer your question, around 13, 14 years of age, when I started to really get into uh, understanding the concepts behind those principles. So uh, at that point, uh, what was your first ambition? Did, were you already uh, dreaming of becoming an athlete? Yeah, that was it. You know, Miss Grace Carey had a yard that was ironically shaped like a football field. And she was down the street from us. And that was during the time when you probably heard this before the kids were disciplined by the, you know, you've heard the, the phrase, it takes a village to raise. Man, that, that's what we had in North Tulsa, Oklahoma, 537 East Young Place. 
our home is still there and you know we've got it kind of boarded up and everything but uh it's still there we still own it uh, but Miss Grace Carey, one of our neighbors had a an area, a, some, a parcel of land that looked like a mini football field. It was like it was much smaller, but it was it was it was the shape longwise. It was a rectangle shape like a football field. And we would play football on her on her uh, on her property there. And that's everyone kind of congregated around that 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 area, that space. And that's we kind of where we honed our skills. And that was that was a, that was a fun spot, man. We did a lot of cool things on that field. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show. American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed the life of a test pilot, and the birth of an American icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Do you remember one of the early moments when you realized, man, I'm pretty good? Yep, I remember exactly when it happened. There was this guy named Bobby Pennington, who was the best athlete in our neighborhood, and, you know, the way Miss Grace Carey's yard was set up, that rectangle shape um, football field, if you will, or yard was set up alongside the street. And so, you know, you got to be careful. You could run up and down the field, but you didn't want to get into the street. But at any rate, I, the cars would drive by and I would imagine myself, I would say, and we used to say the names of the people who we were impersonating, who we thought we were. And I would say, Tony Dorsett, you know, and I'd run and I'd cut a move and or whatever. And we'd say the names of the people that we were trying to emulate. And um, and I would imagine the people in the cars driving by were there looking at me. And I remember one time Benny, Bobby Pennington was in front of me and I juked him really bad and made him miss. And everybody went, ooh. And I never will forget that. And man, it, made, it swole me up inside. I was just like, I was feeling myself at that moment. And so when I juked Bobby Pennington, I knew that I had a little something extra because he was the best athlete on the field and he couldn't catch me. And, uh, and that was the first time, that was the inflection point, if you will, when I knew that I had a little bit of something extra. What did that stir inside you? I mean, what's, uh, explain that to me. Like anything, hope, you know, possibility. When, when, you, when you discover what you're capable of uh, and you cast out into the great unknown and not to be so melodramatic about it, but you, a lot of times when you discover things, you don't know it. Back to the hero's journey idea. The hero's journey is about discovery, right? You uh, you have this ordinary experience, and then there's conflict, uh, whether it comes in the form of somebody as a defender that wants to stop you from advancing, or it's a a job situation that threatens you personally or challenges you. There is a point at which you have to make a decision to go into the great unknown, 
and in, invest your time, effort, or energy, or whatever it is, to confront it. And um, you know, again, I I think if they go back to the scriptures, uh, my mom, one of them was be anxious for nothing, as I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace that surpasses all all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ who strengthens you. And those things are burnt in my memory. I don't need uh, I don't need to have cards or anything like that. And it's almost like Lois told Timothy to fan into flame that smoldering fire that's inside of you. And so back in the ancient times, they always kept the embers uh, there burning. It wasn't a flame fully because that would be a waste of energy. But if they needed a flame, they would simply fan them into flame like you would use bellows. They didn't have bellows necessarily, but they would wave and fan those smoldering uh, embers into flame. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what it's about. When you know you've got it inside of you, boom, on demand, those words are there. And, I, and she taught us the importance of words. One of the, the passages that sticks out to me right now, as the snow and the rain comes down from heaven and waters the seed and causes it to bring forth after its own kind, so shall my word be. It, the word, will not return void until it has achieved the purpose unto which it was sent. What does that mean? Well, as the snow and the rain, look, think of the imagery. The snow and the rain comes down from heaven waters the seed, right? It, it, it's there to hit the mountains and the temperature uh, of, the, of the land will melt it. And then it, if it's since it's a high level, it's going to go down and then settle in the valley. That water is there for a purpose. As the snow and the rain comes down from heaven, waters the seed and causes it to do what? Bring forth after its own kind. That is to say, if I've got you know watermelon down there, if I've got oranges, I've got tomatoes, if I've got whatever I've got, if that seed is touched by water, and that water, that seed is in fertile ground, the seed really has no choice in the equation. It must bring forth that which it was created to bring forth. So as the snow and the rain comes down and waters the seed and causes it to bring forth after some kind, so shall my word be. And so what she's doing is paralleling the truth of God's word with this literal plant or seed or whatever it is that you have. So like the seed, the word, it does not return void until it has achieved the purpose unto which it was sent. So whatever God says about that situation that you're speaking about, man, he's saying just like this is not going to come back void. That thing is going to rise up out of the ground and look, I can guarantee you. Yeah, I mean, I see it today, but if that, what kind of seed is that? It's a tomato seed. Okay. That thing, when it comes up, it's going to be red. And let me tell you what it's going to look like. It's going to have a green stem. It's going to have this. That's before it even manifests visually. I can have that confidence and that faith that that's what's going to happen. And that's what the power of the scriptures are really all about. They give you bibliography and footnotes about events that have not even occurred yet. And so when you exercise faith, one of the things my mom taught me is just is not blind at all. It's not such thing as blind faith. Authentic faith relies on a history. It relies on a past. There has been a predecessor that preceded this that you can literally have confidence in. So it's not like that you've never seen it before. I mean, anybody that pops the rear end down in a chair that may be sitting there, you're not doing it because it's the first time you've seen a chair. I mean, you've seen thousands of chairs, and because you have that corpus of history in your mind, anything that even remotely looks like a chair, immediately you know whether or not it can hold your weight. So you do what? You exercise faith and you sit in it because it what? It looks like a chair, and you've sat down in a lot of chairs before. So anyway, that's kind of a complicated way of explaining it, but man, it's really simple, ultimately. Well, so you were good. And but you had to long uh, along the way somehow you, you had to learn how to compete. How did you learn mm -hmm. how to compete? Man, um, well, failure does that to you. You know, uh, me. Here's one of my sayings: uh, No is my vitamin. 
you know, I have a, when you're in life and you're trying to do things, I remember I'm sitting here in my office now in Houston, Texas. And when I first got here after graduating from the University of Oklahoma, and I had been working in broadcast television in the off season, and I was drafted by the Houston Oilers. And so before I got here to even play football, I immediately sent the NBC affiliate a letter, you know, requesting that they, I come in and interview for an opportunity there. And remember, I'm like 22, 23 years old, just getting out of college. And, um, you know, there are people who have traditional views about, you know, what level you should be at before you get that right. This is the fourth largest city in the nation and a top, you know, a top five market. Um, you know, do, do you deserve to be that in that position? Well, I had been already working in broadcast television uh, at the NBC affiliate in Oklahoma City, and I had my own radio show. And I'm not that I was polished or anything that I wasn't that good necessarily. I had time, plenty of room to grow. But the fact of the matter is there was a confidence that comes up as a result of uh, playing football, uh, every single play, you're, there are 11 guys trying to stop you from doing what you're trying to do. So you get a lot of experience at failing, so to speak. But it's not failure in the strictest sense of the definition. You just got to understand. And when you get as a pro, you understand it because you may be making a lot of money to do what you do. But those people on the defensive side are pay, being paid a lot of money to stop you from doing. So you got to develop a measure of respect for each other as professionals that you're not going to win every single battle. So as cliche as that may sound, uh, when you're in the throes of trying to achieve, uh, I think you that's where you learn it. You learn it. And for me, it came in broadcast television. I got rejected. They told me, no, thank you, but thank you. And so when they saw some of my work, uh, I was doing this deal called the, the Life of a Rookie. And I was sending it back to the NBC affiliate in Oklahoma City uh, who wanted to do this project with me. Well, I had to come into the NBC affiliate at uh, in Houston to do it to send it back via satellite. So the station that told me no saw my work ethic coming in there. At, so wait a minute, aren't you the guy we just saw, you know, on TV practice at football? Because they had photographers out there. He said, aren't you the guy, you, you have football practice and you're, you're coming? Oh yeah, I'm coming here to do this story. And, and so that was what helped me get to where I am right now, was being told no, and then being having the ability to demonstrate my consistency in a totally different discipline to them. So. Being told no is really what, what, the, what the key is, and that's what builds resiliency. Well, absolutely. You can see that, you know, just across the spectrum. So many people I've interviewed in mm -hmm. my life, you know, failure has been, you know, a gift in a way. Oh, yes, absolutely. I so, mean, it, it's, it's always a gift. I mean, so at any rate, it's, it's a good gift. So you, uh, you were highly recruited. Uh, why Oklahoma? Is that a stupid question? No, it's not stupid. I mean, the obvious answer would be... Um, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, uh, you know, we're just talking here so on the audio side of it, but if you were in my office, you could see that I've got Billy Sims's uh, jersey up here, and I've got, I used to, I traded, changed my number from 34 to 20 because of Billy Sims, and uh, even though he was from uh, Hooks, Texas, uh, he was my idol growing up, and, um, and is a good friend, dear friend to this day, and, you know, had made such an impression on me that that was, Although I did go to Alabama, I visited Alabama, UCLA, uh, Nebraska, uh, some big schools. SMU was hot then. I went to the SMU uh, and I went to some programs, but ultimately it was going to be it's going to be Oklahoma. And that was um, that was the, the school or program I wanted to because I was to be a Sooner was a big deal in Oklahoma. So I was a native son, wanted to stay. You're talking about the glory days of Barry Switzer. And of course, you you bet you were uh, uh, player of the year in the big eight and you uh 
uh, won a national championship. What's the the most valuable lesson that you learned from Barry Switzer? Um, I would say there's, there's a lot of them, but but to hone it to one, I would say this. And people used to get mad at me for doing this because Barry was known as kind of a, or he had the reputation of being kind of a um, uh, a bootlegger's boy. He was a bootlegger's boy. He was his, that was the name of his book. Yeah, that's right. It was yeah. the name of his book. And people had this, you know, he was a loose guy, as, was, as some people would refer to him. Uh, Barry just spoke what was on his mind and his heart. And that was, most people don't have that kind of courage to do what he does in that regard. And while he may not be perfect, uh, I tell you what, I'll go to war for him, man. And I, he just, I'll tell you a quick story, then I'll answer your question. In 1983, I'm standing uh, in the corridor as a young freshman at Oklahoma University and I'm um, starting against Nebraska, national television, 80-some thousand people there. And I'm in the corridor waiting to go out on the field and this is my first big game, big start. And Barry Switzer comes in and he comes down that call and, and I'm standing there and he grabs me by the shoulders and he used to have this big old chaw on the side of his mouth and he took it out and threw it away. And he said, he said, Spencer, I just wanted to tell you something. He says, um, the way you take care of Duck, Kathy and Greg, those are three kids uh, this summer. And, um, you know, he says that really means a lot to me. And I just wanted you to know that I love you because I talked to them about how you handle them and how you how they engage and how, and I watch the way you operate and you function. And I just wanted you to know, son, I love you. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this man is talking about love, and I'm here trying to get hype for a big game. You try to go hit somebody. I'm trying to go hit somebody, man. <laughs> I said, come on, coach, man. And I'm gonna tell you something. I wept for about three minutes, and when I shut it off. There was nothing that was going to stop me from having a great game. I remember diving from the five or six yard line, whatever it was, and scoring a touchdown. And I, you know, I had one of the greatest games of my career in that moment. And it, and he inspired me in a way that I can't even uh, imagine. But to your point about the lesson that he taught me, uh, or what I learned from Barry Switzer, um, it was part of that. It's connected to that. I and I used to get people upset at me when I would say this because they would ask me the same thing you did to describe Barry Switzer for me. And I would say Barry was like the Apostle Paul. He he was all things to all men that he may win some to Oklahoma football. That's and that's the way he was. He was all things to all men. There's a road to Damascus story in there somewhere. That's right. Absolutely. Well, he didn't get knocked off any any animals or anything like that, but the point of it was he was all things. It doesn't matter. He could relate to the kid who was broke as the Ten Commandments. He, he, he was a person ultimately of means. He had established himself in the oil and gas business and did some things. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you, he walks into a house, uh, John Blake, the late John Blake, who was a, a, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, who was a, a former head coach at Oklahoma, was with Barry at Dallas Cowboys and, and the, the Buffalo Bills and so forth. He used to say about Barry Switzer, he says, Barry Switzer could convince a shark that the desert is the best place for him to be. <laughs> that's, that's pretty and that's yeah. that's his recruiting ability but you know that's why i used the apostle paul because he was all things to all people that he could win some the objective was to get you to come to oklahoma and he was always going to tell you the truth he'll never lie i mean that that was the that's the irony of, of barry switzer his reputation belied that he he would never lie to you man uh if whatever he told you it was gonna he was gonna do it and 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 he would tell you those difficult truths too and so that's what i respected about him a great deal well, you're, you're drafted, uh, you go off to Houston, and um, are you thinking at that point, okay, I'm going to play in the NFL for a few years, and, and then I'm going to get in broadcasting? What's going through your mind at that point? No, I don't think you go into the National Football League thinking you're going to make it unless you're a surefire first, top-round draft pick and all that stuff. And 
you know, I was projected to go in the, the bottom half of the first round into the second round, but a couple of things happened that were unfortunate, but that was one of the other lessons that I learned about, you know, not everybody's your friend. They say, if you have a, a problem or something negative happens to you, don't worry about it. Keep it to yourself because not everybody's your friend. Uh, if something bad happens to you, 80% of the people don't care. The other 20% glad, are glad it's you that it happened to. So they you don't worry about that kind of stuff. But so I slipped to five and uh, but again, had an opportunity. Um, uh, the late C.O. Brocato, who was a scout for the Houston Oilers, had seen a lot of what my game was about and uh, a great performance in the Orange Bowl also propped me up where I got drafted and um, and that helped out a great deal. And and it, it led to a long career. And so uh, for running back, you know, the average person, if you can make it, you listen, there are about 38,000 kids that play the various divisions um, that comprise the, the three um, that you're going to be drafted from that pool. And about 220 of them are going to get drafted every year. That's it. So that's 0.03% of the people that are eligible to play are going to get drafted. And after year one, 62% uh, of those will not be in the National Football League. So the attrition rate is incredible. So it's it's rare to even make it to get in that position. So I feel fortunate enough to be a part of that cycle. And while you were in Houston, something interesting, let's say, happened in a taxi cab. Tell me that story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, we were coming back. We, My wife and I had one <clears throat> car. We had a little black BMW, a little 325i. And I remember... We used to leave it at the airport, you know, particularly if we had a road game. And if she was going out on a trip, she was a, a flight attendant for United Airlines. And that week, um, I had to, I took a cab to downtown. And we always stayed at the Hyatt Regency. It was a home game. We were playing the Atlanta Falcons. I never will forget that. And so I was taking a cab from the Hyatt to the, the, uh, the, the dome, uh, to the Superdome, uh, to um, uh, our dome. And so... In the process of driving there, it's not that far. It's maybe about, oh, about eight, nine miles or so from downtown. In the process of driving, the cab driver, I'm in the back and we're talking. And I asked him a question. He asked me a question. And we sat there and chatted for a while. And then the last thing I said to him, I asked him a question about something. He, he didn't say anything. And I noticed that the car started to drift over to the left a little bit. And I looked up and I saw it, his reflection in the face and his eyes were closed and he was starting to slump and lean over. Well, he went into cardiac arrest on uh, 288, which is the main thoroughfare that takes you straight to- You know, this is beginning to sound like an action uh, yeah. <laughs> movie starring uh, Bruce Willis. Yeah, but it's true, it's exactly what happened, man. And so <clears throat> I immediately jumped from the back of that seat into the front of that seat and uh, managed somehow to get the car pulled over to the shoulder. And here's the irony of it, you know, I. I said to myself, had this been any other day other than a Sunday morning, um, I, I'm not sure I would be here right now because there was nobody on the street and the, it wasn't crowded. But I guarantee you, had it been a regular work day in Houston with its traffic, we'd have hit some other cars. We'd have hit something because we moved over three full lanes before I was able to get over and, and, and deal with that car. I mean, you think so, so? Tell me if I'm right here. You had to save your life before you could save his life. Well, it was it, it went in tandem. We had to save each other's life, but I mean, literally, that's that's what happened. I had to save my life. You're right to save his life, and I got him out of the car on the side of the road. And it's really weird, and I don't know if this is even, even germane to the conversation, but I, I tell the story because it's uh, I make the point because it's 
I think we don't talk about these things in, in society. Uh, of all the things I was thinking about in that moment, um, I remember when I was about uh, 13, concurrent with the time when I was working at, before I worked at Build the Steel and Coca-Cola, uh, one, one summer I worked for Oklahoma Methodist Manor, which was a, um, a retirement home. And I learned CPR there. And while I was administering the CPR, this man on the side of the road, uh, I was thinking to myself, here I am, an African-American male, over the top of this white guy that's laying down on the ground. And I'm wondering what these people are thinking as they're driving, because they don't know what the situation is. You know, here, and so the stereotypical response would be, he must be assaulting him. He's, he's you know, and that, I'm thinking, what, what must we be like as a people if that's where we are? I mean, I'm not Pollyanna about it. I understand our nation's history. I understand my own history. I understand where we are in the world. I get it. I'm, I'm very mindful of these things. Uh, but I thought to myself in that moment of all the things I could be thinking about, that literally went through my mind in that moment. One lady did stop on the side of the road and she was going to church and she offered, after I used the man's two-way mic to get to, to call his dispatcher and tell them what happened. After I used that and the, and the paramedics got there, she offered me a ride to the dome. And I said, ma'am, I need to get to the dome. I got a football game to play. And she said, well, I'll take you. She said, great. So I get in the car and I remember we didn't talk much about what just happened, but in the brief four minutes or so, because we were halfway there uh, to get to the dome. I remember her asking her, I, she was telling me she was Episcopalian. I said, well, I don't know much about Episcopalian. I said, you know, I raised, was, my dad was Baptist and so forth. And I was small talk. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about Episcopalian. She said, well, we're basically Catholics who can divorce. And I, that, was, <laughs> that was what I remember. That was just funny to me in, in that moment. So anyway, that was a, a, a funny Sunday um, and a really weird thing. Page forward, I don't know if it was 17 years later, a long time. I'm on a Southwest Airlines flight coming back from Dow from uh, Arizona, and I had to go through Dallas-Fort Worth to get back to Houston. And this guy come walks up to me, and he shakes my hand, says, hey, man, I've been following your career, yada, yada, yada. And he says, you may not remember me by name, and he called his name. Says I'm the guy that you saved in that cab. Oh my back. God! And I was like, "Holy cow!" That was weird. And he asked. He thought he recognized me. And he asked the flight attendant, and so she looked at her manifest. That's pre-COVID and all this other stuff, obviously. Um, and and he asked, and she told him, "She said, well, that's so and so." So she said, "I don't know if I can tell you." And she said, "Well, I already know his name." She said, "But I just wanted to confirm it." And so she confirmed it. And uh, he says, "Well, I'm the guy that you saved." You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So eventually you were traded to San Francisco toward the end of the Joe Montana era. You become a co-captain of that team. You have a, had a great run there. You believe that you were brought to that team partially for leadership at the time that Montana was competing with with Steve Young. Tell me that story. Mm -hmm. Well, I just thought it was odd that of all the places where they would put me in the locker room would, would be, be on that same side of the bench where they were. And I mean, it was, it's like, if you walked into our 4949 Centennial Boulevard, I, you, you walk straight down and you would see my seat, uh, Joe Montana's Steve Young's. And so I'm thinking, why am I in between the quarterbacks? And why am I sitting here? And I remember one day, 
Steve, now Steve is not playing yet. Steve Young obviously would become a Hall of Famer, you know, an elite quarterback and all that stuff. Wasn't playing. And we used to call him Bobby Brady because he was, he had this curly black hair and he was always, seemed like he was mischievous. He was always twisting it and, and just not seeming like he was in lockstep with everything, but just a phenomenal athlete. I mean, he used to out sprint us at the end of practice when we do our little run drills and all that stuff. But, um, I would always ask, and then one day I asked Dr. Harry Edwards, because he was really in charge of all that stuff, and they had a very sophisticated approach to the way they set up the locker room. And I remember asking Doc, I said, Doc, why y'all got me down here, man? And he says, come talk to me in a couple of months, and we'll, we'll, we'll tell you why. And in between that time, Steve Young asked me a question. He said, Spencer, he said, man, your, your attitude is the same way every day. How do you do it? You, you're playing behind Roger and you went to Oklahoma. I've seen you play. You should be starting for somebody. And I said, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm a starter, you know? <laughs> he said, but how do you do it? How do you have that consistency? You come out, you're the same way every day, man. You got a smile on your face. You're bumping around here and just bouncing off the walls. So how do you do it? And I basically said something about everything I do is unto the Lord. You know, I wasn't trying to be so super spiritual that I, but, but I think, you know, being a third generation, you know, Mormon, a descendant of Brigham Young, he would he would appreciate that to some degree. And so he said, well, what do you do on Tuesdays? I said, well, Brent Jones and I and a couple other guys, we have a, uh, a Bible study over at his place. And he says, Bible study, huh? I said, yeah. I said, but it's probably not what you think of it is a Bible study. What we do is we look at the characters and say, okay, how can we emulate? What is it about their life? What, about, what is it about their experiences that we can identify with? It's the hero's journey, again, that recurring theme. And so that's what it was about. And he, that, he was compelled by that. And he came to the first two that we had and did. And I don't think he stopped for that year. He came to several of them. And uh, most of them he came to. And, um, and I just remember, I remember uh, Doc coming up to me and he, he said, now do you know why we put you here? And I said, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. He wanted me to be an example to not just Steve Young or anybody else, but everybody else in that locker room to show people what the model was, what the how to perform when you're in a unique situation, when you know you probably could be started with someone else, when everything is not, and my mom used to call this being anointed but not appointed. When you are anointed to do more, but yet not appointed, how do you sit there pregnant with purpose and talents and gift until that time comes when you are appointed to be the starting quarterback? And here's another thing that I never really mentioned. And uh, Joe, you know, I was with Joe a couple of years, just two years ago, I think, at the Lombardi Honors here in Houston. And he, he and Ronnie came and spent some time with me. Those captains came back and helped me out with that. And uh, it was at practice, and Joe, I had a, a bag of ice on my ankle. And I, I had twisted it or something, but I was, in, I was still active. I was still, you know, between reps and everything. I just was trying to get some ice on it to kind of give me a little contrast. And I remember Joe asking me, he said, Spence, let me get that bag from you. So I gave him the bag of ice. He never gave it back to me. And I remember the last thing I remember him doing was putting it on his elbow, on the inner side of his elbow. And then I turned, went back in and got my reps into that next group. And, you know, George was hollering at me. Seifert was hollering at me about something. And that was and the beginning of the end right there. That was the beginning of the end. That was the inflection point right there. He had literally torn that, that, that elbow. And I was like, and nobody knew it. It was kind of like, a, a quote I was reading, I was preparing a talk and, and I was trying to find a way to how to dramatically communicate this. And I, I use these smooth stones. I said, each of our lives is like a smooth stone tossed across the surface of a pond. We skip and we dance and we skip and we dance. 
And until finally we run out of momentum and we sink to 100,000 fathoms of nothingness, there will be an eruption, although no one will hear it, it will make Vesuvius seem hardly noticeable. And again, the idea of eruption and the idea of um, something profound happening, although no one was privy to it, no one knew that Joe, that was going to be his last time as a starter, his last game, and that Steve was going to take over. Nobody on that field at that moment knew that that was the inflection point. But it was like two plays later is when he actually tore it. And uh, he asked me for that ice bag. Well, it, uh, Young, of course, was right. You were good enough to start for a lot of NFL teams at that point. What did you learn about yourself by competing with Roger on a daily basis? Oh, that's good. Well, I think he influenced me and Ronnie influenced me in that, uh, you know, Roger was going to run down the breadth, the length of the field you know, every single time he touched the ball. I, every time, it didn't matter. He was running the length of the field. What I learned from him was how to be that guy that did that. There's a reason why he was starting. Uh, it didn't mean that I wasn't able to start or capable of starting for somebody else. It meant that they hired a guy who was the first player to rush and receive 4,000 yards. I mean, there was a reason why he was Roger Craig. I mean, here's a guy who was a fullback for Mike Rozier, another Heisman Trophy winner. And I think he, he obviously lasted longer than Mike did. You know, Mike was a teammate of mine here in Houston, and uh, we're good friends to this day. And so I've, I've, I couldn't get away from those. I beat him on the field in college, but I couldn't get away from him at the next level. But, um, but yeah, I learned, I learned a lot about work ethic from, from Roger. And, and, and uh, I mean, again, my work ethic wasn't bad, but, man, we can always improve. I mean, we can – and he was a model. I mean, this workouts were, no, you know, legendary. He and Jerry Rice, Jr. Uh, man, those guys were off the chain, man. And uh, they inspired me. I would watch them and get inspired about, you know, some of the things that I would do. What was so, it like watching, uh, just say in practice, uh, watching Rice just, who was not supposed to be fast, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he, he had what we call functional speed. Uh, he ran. A, he functioned like pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, functional speed, like your guys out there who have, I, like I got fast, uh, quick twitch fiber. I'm not a tall guy, but I'm, it looks like I'm going fast, but I'm really just very quick. And which can be beneficial, but when you're you're Jerry Rice, you have length and stride. You have functional speed. It may not look like you're going fast, but you're covering so much ground. And if you can work on the parts, the functional parts, uh, getting your feet off the ground real quick and recovery. Skip pants. We used to do these skip prance drills, and it's it's basically like a Tennessee walking horse. If you can get that hoof off the ground really quick, and your your foot is not on the surface of the ground very long. And then if you do that, you can actually be in the air. There's a point at which, and it's a microsecond, where both feet are literally off the ground as you're running. He had the capacity to perfect his skill at running. He ran very functional like Carl Lewis ran. And Carl Lewis had that same thing. And Carl Lewis was very fast, obviously. But um, that was the one thing I learned about Jerry Rice. Jerry was like a four or five guy. He wasn't a, a blazer. But man, he had functional speed and you couldn't just recover. If you got beat on those precise routes and moves that he ran, you weren't gonna, even if you were faster than him, mechanically you could not correct and, and recover <clears throat> fast enough before he got away from you. So, um, and I think that was the question you asked, one of the things that separated him. Yeah, well, obviously you had some you know, really great electrifying moments yourself in San Francisco. I remember that great kickoff return you had on Monday Night Football against the Giants. Mm -hmm. um, right before the snap, What's going through your mind? Put me put me in that situation. Well, 
listen, as a guy who was a, a primarily a third down and special teams guy at San Francisco, uh, what I thought about more was, <laughs> it's kind of an ironic thing, and I'm admitting this now, but it was really about preservation. It was about, okay, you're going to be spent, man, on all of these special teams. And when you do go in occasionally, um, you're going to, you got to have your A game. So I knew I was going to be winded. I knew I was going to be tired. So I would actually gauge. I would all give out 100% of what I had now. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I would really measure myself and make sure that I was uh, efficient with the way I handled myself. And, um, and so what it was like for me was about calm. It was about being smart. It was about understanding splits and, and not working harder than I needed to work to, to get pre-snap reads. You can do that even on special teams. Like a quarterback, I had a, a philosophy. When, when a quarterback comes to the line of scrimmage, he's doing three things. He's trying to disearn threats, right? Next thing, he's going to call plays to give him the best chance to succeed against those threats. And then he's got to execute the play. So it's a one, two, three-step process. But a person on special teams can do the same thing. I can tell if they come down in a closed tight formation and we don't have to have gunners that I can cheat and I can do some things. And without getting into the idiosyncrasies of it all, the bottom line is this. Pre-snap read, you can learn a lot. You can save yourself a lot of trouble. Instead of coming in with preconceived notions about what they're going to do, read what's in front of you. You know, there's a reason why God gave you a brain and the eyes to see and discern and all of that stuff. Use it. And so uh, that's what I would do. For me, it was a very cerebral game. But then there was another kind of a bipolar side, and I don't know if I should use that word but um, because it's a clinical definition, but uh, I, there was an antithetical side to me as well. I remember George Seifert coming up to me asking me if I had a death wish because I remember we were playing Dallas Cowboys, and I literally dove over two guys. That, that was when you could literally have a wedge. And guys would literally put their arms together, and I dove over the top, and I nailed um, Herschel Walker. I mean, he hit him, and he was like, how'd you get over the top? You know, he's like, how'd you get over and so I, I, I literally dove over him. And if George said he cringed when he saw it, he said, this guy's going to kill himself. You know, and he says, I love the fact that you're passionate about what you do, man. And I would literally have half my face painted with this black stuff right on this side. And I said, he said, are you crazy? He said, do you have a death wish? And I never, I said, no, I don't. But if they think I am, I've won half my battle. Because this is a mental game. And you know that, and I know that. And so... That was my message to him, and uh, he thought I was crazy. I wasn't crazy. But, I just understand human nature and how it works. But you did have to have, in order to compete, you did have to have this very emotional quality in, in no addition, question. right? Yeah. You got no to be question. fired up. No question. Listen, we were nuts. You know, Greg and myself and some of the other guys who were on special teams a lot, um, we, we had to be absolutely nuts. Keep. Henderson and some of the other guys that were on, on, on special teams with us that were the, the cornerstone of those units, um, Wesley Walls and others, we were absolutely crazy. I mean, we people thought we were nuts, man, because we had this little deal we call a bruise crew. And, you know, it's kind of corny, but um, we, you walk in there, you see this plaque on the wall, and we, we fight for the who was going to be in that position, top three. You know, we had a little white envelope there with some little money in it if you finished up on the top of those each week. And we always vied for that position. And um, we created that culture of competitiveness. And it was important that we had that. And, and Lynn Stiles, to his credit, our special teams coach was the one, and he worked with the tight ends as well, um, was the one that instilled that in us and, and got us focused on those type of things. So when your career ended, mm-hmm. Did you handle it mentally okay? I think so. Uh, I remember it was what we called a Boston play. Uh, it was a stretch play to the right. And we the, the way we called the plays was 
L.A. was to the left, Boston was to the right, and it was just a stretch play that took you straight to the tackles. And you, the, the idea was to run to a point as fast as you possibly can to influence the linebackers so that the guards could get angles on them. And one day, I remember Jeff Fisher had taken over the head coaching position. This was after I left San Francisco and came back to Houston to play a couple more years. And I was running a stretch play, and for whatever reason, I could not get there. And Jeff says, back on the ball, back on the ball. And I, I said, Jeff, run it, run it again. Uh, run, run, can you run it again? And I ran it again. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he just kind of did his finger, you know, motion to me. He says, how you feeling? And I said, I think I'm going to retire. I just remember just like yesterday. And he just looked at me and goes, hmm. And that was it. It was a nondescript moment. Uh, I just could not make, I could not get to that edge like I did. And I was, it was the first time I, when it hit me, it was like, it happened one day. It's like one day I couldn't do it at the same level. Now I, I could have probably fudged it a little bit and, and not read it and, and try to bent it back, but it wouldn't have sold the linebackers. And he would have basically told me, or someone would have looked at the film and said, wait, stretch the play, man. We need to get those linebackers flowing. You need to influence them. So run, hightail it, get to that point but I couldn't get there as fast as I usually got there. And it's almost like it just came out of nowhere. One day it happened. So that, and I was working for the NBC affiliate at that time. And that night I literally went and did the 10 o'clock, six and 10 o'clock news after practice. And I announced my retirement on, on the air that night. And I won't forget it. Scoop yourself. Was, was, yep. Scoop myself. <laughs> um, was that a difficult conversation with your wife to tell her that? Nah, not really. I mean, uh, you know, she had been around this stuff. I mean, she was a pom-pom girl in Oklahoma. I met her, and I think I met her um, on my first touchdown against Ohio State in college. She was cheering in the end zone. And when I saw that girl over there cheering, she's a pom-pom girl, I told Glenn, one of our ball managers, hey, man, uh, keep this ball. And I remember Keith Jackson said, little Spencer Tillman rolled right outside. Whoa, Nelly. I just remember that. Yeah, that's right. And when I scored... I saw her cheering and jumping up. I said, well, that girl is beautiful. And I tossed the ball to the official, and I told our Glenn to get that ball for me. I said, but more importantly, find out who that girl is. So you're there. always thinking three steps always ahead. Thinking, till, always you know. thinking three steps ahead. So anyway, there's another story about how we got, how we met and married and all this that was really interesting, too, because I was too scared to say anything to her. And her roommate, um, Lawan, uh, about maybe a month and a half after that, I was on campus doing this deal called the, I don't know, you remember the dating game, right? Where they have one oh, person sure. on one partition, three guys on the other side or three women, whoever the case may be. Well, I was one of the guys that was in this one deal and her roommate of all people, and I didn't know it at the time, it was her roommate, didn't know I, who she was roommate, hadn't even said anything to her yet. But her roommate picked me out of this group of three guys that was on it. And when we finally met at the one of the last games of that season, we met and we were going to talk about well, we got the date to go to this place called Doc Severance's. I don't remember the sidekick for Johnny Carson, Doc sure. Severance. He had a restaurant there in, in, uh, uh, in Oklahoma City. And so it was branded Doc Severance's anyway. So he was supposed to be there and so forth. And we were going to go. Dinah Shore and some other people were going to be there. And we were going to go. And uh, she told me she couldn't go. This is Lawan, my wife's uh, roommate. And so my wife is standing there because they're roommates. And, I, and all the time I'm thinking... You guys know each other? She says, yeah, this is my roommate. Oh, And I didn't read as my wife, and I didn't know this at the time, that they were roommates. So I'm looking 
after saying, well, the girl that picked me is not the girl I like, right? So, so at any rate, she told me no that following week as well. That was the end of the season. And when she finally told me no that then, I said, well, I said, would you like to go? Because we've got this little thing. We got to take it. Otherwise, it's going to be expired. And she said, well, I can't go. Luan said, go, Rita. Go ahead and go. And when she told me that, it was over with. You know, so she allowed her roommate to go with me to this thing. And about maybe two months later, I, I proposed to Rita and we got married. And that was been 35 years ago. See, there's another case where a no is yeah, a great motivator. A no is a no is my vitamin, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've had a great career in broadcasting. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, CBS uh, College Football Today and, and uh, local uh, broadcasting sportscasters in, uh, in New York and, and Houston. Um, What's been the key to your success in that business? Uh, I just go back to the work ethic, you know, uh, and being creative, being relevant. Uh, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And what I try to do, I don't know if I did a good job of it today, but what I try to do in these speaking engagements is understand how to say the same thing three different ways uh, so that I could drive home messages and be entertaining and to tell stories. Ultimately, that's what we're doing. We're telling stories and you know it's it's an old axiom but people don't necessarily remember what you were wearing or anything like that but what they do remember is how you made them feel and what i want people to leave with is a sense that i'm authentic i'm a hard hat and lunch pail guy i have a passion for people um i have a heart that is sensitive to uh pain and suffering i've had a fair bit amount of it in my own life uh, with death and suffering and, and tragedies to uh, my brothers and, 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 and there's been some difficult things that have happened. And so I, I think I bring that to bear uh, with those experiences. And so I think that's kind of part of my brand. Uh, if people don't know it, they, they sense it. And uh, that's what I want them to leave with. Well, broadcasting I, is a lot subtler, obviously, than football. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do you define winning in broadcasting? Um, I think you define it a lot of ways when you can tell a story, um, in let's say a 15 second window from the time that that play ends, there are bibliography and footnotes that you come into the game with, you studied, you've done all of that. Now, how can you in real time tell a story with a beginning, a middle and an end in like 15 seconds? And if you're working with my partner, Tim Brando, you got to do it in seven. Because, you know, he wants to suck all the air out. Tim's going to die with a microphone <laughs> in his hand. And we tease each other about that all the time. You know, Tim Tim Brando loves him some Tim Brando. And we're, we're good about that. And some that. Cajun we, food. <laughs> that's, that's right, right, right. And, he lo- and, we, and I love him, too. We spend time with each other's families when we go to, you know, our respective cities. And uh, that's my – we call it Ace Boon Coon. That's my Ace Boon Coon right there now. And um, uh, so – I think that what I learned is how to tell stories in constricted time. And it's, it's really fun. The, the thing that I love about what I do is I get a chance to test my bibliography and footnotes to see what I'm speaking to larger audience off the football field. Cause see, the football field is a metaphor for me, right? Um, it, it's a red zone. It, it, how do you know you're in a red zone? That's what my book is about. You know you're in a red zone when the need to achieve an objective is immediate. The obstacles between you and the objectives are formidable. The options available to you are limited and time is running out. When I sat down with Bill Walsh and we figured out, and he told me, this is when he had left and he was actually 
about maybe five months out from dying. Uh, he invited me to come to Redwood City and we had um, had lunch a couple of days and I stayed out for like four days and we would meet and we would have, meet at different restaurants and we would talk. And he told me a lot about leadership that he wouldn't tell me. He had moved up to the GM's office at that point um, uh, in that, that year that I was there. So even then there were things that they can tell you after you, the game was played that they can't tell you while you're a player. And he literally gave me, I mean, everything I needed to know about why the 49er organization was set up the way that it was. And we talked about leadership. And one of the things we talked about was where the concept of the red zone came from and why he structured it the way he did. Now I put flesh and neffage to it and put the, 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 the literary kind of spin to it, which hooked Thomas Nelson. And they really loved the concept of the red zone. Um, and, but, but what got him was the idea of the red zone is not so much a place on the football field as much as it is a set of circumstances that puts tremendous pressure on the organization or the individual to achieve or the team to achieve their objectives. So if you can take that metaphor and say, okay, how can I apply this to life? Well, first of all, you need to know when you're in a red zone. Um, Bill Walsh used to have us practice the red zone 16 plays or so at the end of practice. And uh, sometimes he would put them in the middle of practice and kind of sneakily put them around there. But he would always have uh, the guys that practice blow, either blow a horn or a bell or something that indicated that it was red zone time. And you would hear guys say, red zone, red zone. And we, everybody would scurry. And if they were sitting on their helmets, they would get off their helmets. And they would, the countenance of everybody was changing. And people were trying to figure out why that was happening. And one of the things he told me was that it was like a Pavlovian experiment. You know, it's like Pavlov's dogs, you know, you hit the bell and 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 and, uh, and people start salivating or whatever. What we were conditioned to do was to focus at a high level when we heard that horn and someone say red zone, or if it was a bell that day, we heard red zone, period. We knew everybody got, they got their focus, even if they didn't know what was going on. He showed me the all 22 of practice, the overhead camera shot of the body language of people when we got to that segment of practice you would not believe how focused everybody was because why we knew that if we caught the majority of those balls and it was like 16 plays we got them all right it was perfect practice would typically end shortly thereafter or right at that po point now alternately if we didn't perform well in that sec segment in that practice segment it would contend and continue indefinitely we didn't know when it was going to end and guys value their freedom, right? They wanted to get out of practice. They want to, particularly in training camp. So he literally considered it a Pavlovian experiment, the way he manipulated, and I don't mean that in a positive way, the way he got the most out of us. And so the, the concept was when you get inside the 20-yard line, the field constricts from 6,200 square yards or whatever it was down to 1,200. And so you're going to get hit faster. You're going to get hit more violently. Uh, teams don't have to, why, why are you going to hit more violently? But teams don't have to worry about covering the deep pass at that point. So they can put defenders around the line of scrimmage, which makes running the ball very difficult. So you get, it's the line of scrimmage is populated with extra bodies. So everything gets difficult. So a premium has to be placed on, on execution when you get into that place. And the, the years that Joe was there, we had like an 86, 87% efficiency in the red zone. That is to say, when we got inside the 20, we scored touchdowns like 86% of the time. We were right at 90 one year, which was amazing. It, it, nobody's eclipsed that since. So when you get, even in this past, this crazy past happy era that we're in right now, our efficiency ratings then 
Um, and, and with the tight closed formations, you know, yeah, we had three wide sometimes, but we would be two backs. So it was tight formations. We couldn't, we couldn't spread everybody out. Or we, or we just didn't because of the style that we played. My point is f- to have that measure of efficiency running closed formations relative to what we do today was absolutely amazing, but it spoke to the efficiency and the focus on executing in a confined space that the red zone preparation was indicatively uh, indicative of that it ultimately produced for us. And you're, you're talking about pressure as a galvanizing force. No question. It can be, or it's like Epictetus said, the crisis um, doesn't make the person, it merely exposes who they are. So it, the crisis doesn't make you. When you get there, if you who, if you prepared and you who are you're who you are and you're not prepared, you're who you are, when you get to that red zone, the crisis is going to expose whatever it is that you are at that moment. So the crisis doesn't make the person. It merely exposes what you are. And then you go back to the drawing board next week, the next day, you work on it. But you're not going to if, – if, if I'm out of shape going to camp, I'm not going to get in shape that day. If I threw up, if I, I'm just going to be that way for three, four weeks until I get in shape. The crisis or the camp or whatever it is, the circumstance, only exposes where you are. And so it, it, that's where it comes into play in terms of instruction. It's very powerful. So the pressure wh- is. what can the average person who's never competed in sports at a high level take from that metaphor and apply to their daily life about chasing success? Well, the idea that um, get what it is, understand what it is that you need to do to perform and make sure that you're doing everything you possibly can because once you get in the throes of the red zone scenario, that's not the time to try to expect to get the best execution out of yourself. If you haven't already honed it and you're not in shape to execute, you're not going to get it there. It's not going to come out of, it's through osmosis or out of thin air. So get good bibliography and footnotes, have a plan, prepare, and then when you get in the red zone scenarios, you can have a reasonable expectation that you're going to perform well. That's where the confidence comes into play. So train hard, because most of the time, if you train hard and properly, the game is actually less strenuous than the actual practice will be. You know, you're going to run somewhere between 72 and 86 plays, maybe on the high end. And, and that's, you know, you run almost twice that much in the course of a practice if you, if you have a two and a half, three hour practice. So technically or literally, the game should be less strenuous um, than, than a practice should be. You know, unless it's a Friday or Saturday walkthrough or something like that, but certainly less practice, uh, less strenuous than a training camp scenario would be. So preparation is the key to performance. It's key. Well, you do a lot of motivational speaking. Um, mm-hmm. What's the most important lesson that you uh, that you want to communicate to your audience about success, about chasing success? The most important lesson that I can communicate to anybody is to understand the brevity of life. You know, I I wear two watches for a reason. One of them doesn't work. And um, the reason why I wear it is because I I wanted to to have it to remind me of something that I read that was profound. In the back, you can't see it. I don't know if you can see it, but I think you may be able to see it. But I've got a book back there called The The Concept of Anxiety. It's by Zorn Kierkegaard, a weighty book, much too weighty for me. I mean, I, I can understand parts of it, and I've read it twice um over the course of the years but you you, you can't read it in a what you got to read like a paragraph man and sit there and digest it and figure out <laughs> what the heck he was saying 
But one of the things that stood out to me clearly and that I got that's become my mantra, it's become my, um, my ultimate driving force, particularly as I get older, was a line that he said, a quote that he had. He said that all of us must make noise on New Year's Eve to drown out the macabre sound of grass growing over our graves. It was better when we had hourglasses. The clocks deceive us. But we had to invent them because we needed the deception. For the rotating hands give us the illusion that time goes on forever. And meanwhile, we curse the hourglass because indeed, it is a constant reminder that time is truly running out. And you say, well, Spencer, that's pretty macabre. It's actually not. Time is the ultimate agent of purpose. And you only have so much of it. Do not squander it. What Kierkegaard was saying is that, like the hourglass, when that last grain drops down, man, the image of that allows for time to be the ultimate agent of purpose. And the imagery was so profound to me, it's like you can't escape the finality of the imagery. The sweeping hands, as the narrative part of the quote says, gives us the illusion the time goes on forever. Oh, the sweeping hand is 12. Okay, it's 12 a.m. Oh, 12 p.m. It's just those hands just go around and round. We invented those to insulate us from the reality and the shock and the drama of the sand, the last sand granule dropping from that hourglass. It's much, much more palatable to look at sweeping hands of a clock that you know is going to come and keep doing it over and over. That's An hourglass true. doesn't allow you to have that liberty. That's very so true. So if I had to encourage anybody, it would be that. Be mindful of the time. Every uh, every minute you spend on something is an investment. No question. It is an investment that will yield a return. You lost your mother a few years ago, mm -hmm. and you were there at the end. Would you tell me about the last conversation you had with her? I remember, um, I remember her last... Uh, three words. She looked at me and she turned her head sideways and uh, she said, I'm tired, son. And she closed her eyes and that was it. And um, I remember being there with her. And bef two hours before then, she went into cardiac arrest and I was talking to her as it happened. And I just remember her gasping and she says, uh-oh. And she she was going into cardiac arrest. So I, I don't know what she was feeling, but I knew that that was a moment. And then she grabbed my hand and she just squeezed it. And she, she looked at me and this kind of calmness kind of came over. And, uh, and about two hours later, which then they finally, you know, cause it got really violent in there. When, when she went into cardiac arrest, they ripped open the thing and they, they did all this stuff. But about two hours later, they had stabilized it to the point where she she smiled at me and she says, it, you know, she says, son, I'm tired. And then she just leaned over and that was it. Um, that was a profound moment, man, uh, for me, because she ran a good race. She ran the race. She finished strong. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote Scoring in the Red Zone was because for a young lady who grew up in Arkansas picking cotton, and with her cousins and she left a hell of an impact for what she had been given. And that was the question that I asked myself for what I had been afforded in life. I couldn't hold a candle to what she had achieved. 
you know, she went to college for a period of time and graduated from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and uh, UB, UB Pine Bluff, and, um, and then began working for mission stuff. Uh, you know, married my dad some years later, but um, she was a pro man. She just was a good woman, good solid woman. And just to, I, I don't have the words to explain how profound of a person she was. I mean, I'm really doing a woeful job of communicating it. I, I feel it, but I can't tell you what she means to me. She, uh, I hear her spirit, I hear her voices, I hear her admonishment, her encouragement. Every moment, every waking moment I'm alive, I hear her cheering for me, whispering in my ear what she would call nuggets. She said, she would say, let me drop a nugget in your ear. And she would give me some wisdom about a situation. She called me up and say, I saw this, let me tell you this. And she dropped me a nugget and she would drop those nuggets. And I do that to my girls right now. To this day, I, I texted my daughter who was playing volleyball at McNeese and she's the last one in the house. And um, I, I sent her something that, that I'll, I'll share with you that I sent, that my mom sent me some years ago. And my kids don't necessarily know where it came from per se, but um, my mom is the one who's behind all of this stuff. My mom taught me about running well with a full cup of success. And that was the thing that she would always talk about. And I was writing to my daughter, I said, Bailey, think of a person trying to run fast with a full glass of water. If they aren't balanced and under control, they likely will spill most of it by the time they reach their destination. It's a good visual to understand the metaphor and the importance of balance. So what are some specific things we can do to keep more of what we have in our full cup? Top three strategies for running fast with a full cup. Don't take on too much responsibility. Know your capacity before you might have to run. Understand time management is a misnomer. You can't manage time. Time is the most constant and predictable reality in life. There will always be 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute. It will never change. So realize that what you are managing is yourself, your abilities, your passion, your expertise, doing the things that matter and are meaningful to you takes care of that. And finally, learn how to say no when your emotional ability and stress level say you're on empty. This is tricky. Why? Because you are a good person who wants to do right and help others. You want to be thought about as positively by other, positively by others. But you're no, you're you're no good. Okay, let me see if I can. Uh, let me see that. Um, jumped over. But you're no good to others if you're not 100%. Remember, what extra you have to give came to you because you were extraordinary in something else to begin with and someone recognized it in you. So let me say that again. Remember what extra you have to give came because you were extraordinary in something else to begin with and someone recognized that in you. She always talked to them about, she started to get recognized. She, uh, like last week, for example, she was noted and they recognized her as a, one of the top five academic students in the university. And I said, now you, these accolades are starting to come to you, but the reason why you're getting these is because of the impact that you're making in the 
space that you are occupying. The reason why the accolades come is because you're making someone else's job easier. One of the reasons I stayed in the National Football League as long as I did, and there's others who played longer, but I, it was because I was a coach on the field. I made their jobs easier, and I, that didn't get past me. I was mindful of that. I mean, there are guys who complained and who were drafted higher, didn't stay in the league as long as I did because they didn't add value. But, but, but what this is saying to her is that, look, you, you've only got so much that you can give. Be mindful of that. Charge yourself up. Take care of yourself so that you can have more to give to others. So I, I send her these nuggets all the time. Several days after the funeral, you, I think you were struggling. You had kind of a spiritual epiphany, and you went out for a walk. Tell me about yeah. that. I walked right out of my office and out that door, and I walked down uh, to the corridor to the entrance of the gate, and I walked, I headed a beeline toward Highway uh, 90 to 59, and I just kept walking. I kept walking. I kept walking. And I got in my car a couple of days after that and just retraced the path that I went, and it was about 26 miles, almost like a marathon. It was almost right on point, the equal distance of a marathon. And um, along that marathon is where I really got the, the, the full body of the weight of the scoring in the red zone um, operating system, if you will, for lack of a better word, the nephage, the structure, the skeletal structure of it. And it was three core concepts and seven operating principles. And um, uh, in short, they were uh, crucible experiences expose our core values, which leads to reliable visions. All right. That's a hero's journey. Again, crucibles, uh, events that as a result of going through them, cause ourselves to see ourselves in the world in which we live in differently. You know, Luke Skywalker has, has got to confront himself and he's got to go deal with the dark side and faces what ultimately is his father. He didn't want to do it. He, he rejected the call initially. Um, it happens. Everybody, it, it's the hero's journey, classic. But the crucible experience causes us, it's like the, the medieval um, vessels that they would use to, to, the alchemists thought that they could turn base metals into gold. You know, metallurgically, you can't do that, but they didn't know that. But so the, the image of the crucible, which is that porcelain vessel that alchemists would put the raw metal in to try to change it or transform it, that my mother's death changed me. It, it caused me to see myself in the world I was operating in different. So I had to, I had this guilt, you know, I had this sense of, okay, man, dude, you got all this stuff. Uh, and I had never really been a, a materialistic guy necessarily, but man, I, I remember buying a boat at the, uh, the boat show in San Francisco, had the thing uh, shipped here and, and enjoyed it for a number of years out at, but I, I started thinking about all this fun stuff and the family benefited from it. And it's cool. All that stuff is great. But how did I transform other lives? My mother, like I said, she had 1200 people at her funeral. What, what you know, what, what are people saying going to say at my funeral? I mean, it's not about me necessarily, but it's what I did for them or how we helped in some way. And I couldn't in the affirmative answer that question. Would I have the same profound effect that she did? Well, I should have based on what I had been afforded in my life. So, uh, that began this introspective period and that it all came to me on that walk. And so the, the, the book structure came, what I could do with the remainder of my time here on earth came all of that. And that's what I've been doing with my life ever since then. And um, that was an inflection point for me. And what do you, when you get to that point, what do you want your life to have said about your time on this earth? Um, 
that he was a catalyst, that he br broken, even though some people wouldn't necessarily think I was, but as broken and as painful as some of the things that we've been through, I was a catalyst. There's a quote by Amy Carmichael. It says, as the master, so shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But if thine feet are whole, can he hath traveled far, yet hath no wound, no scar, no scar? And it's asking a profound question. The person who has been bruised in the making, the scripture says a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, which takes you to a couple of Hebrew practices of those ancient times. But that's in essence what Amy Carmichael is saying. I don't want to follow somebody that's not been wounded in the making. I wear every bruise, I wear every tragedy, every event as a badge of honor. It is the patina of a well-lived life. And uh, that's what it is in the end for me. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.